Let's cultivate our motivation. So it's due to the kindness and energy of many, many sentient beings that we've had the opportunity to do retreat this last week. So not only the sentient beings who built the roads and the facilities here and grew the food and brought the food to us, not only those sentient beings, but all the ones in previous lives, each of our previous lives, through which we uh, created virtue, and that virtue was also what enabled us to be here this week. So we see that not only our life in samsara, but also our awakening is dependent on sentient beings. And in that way, sentient beings are kind to us. And so it only makes sense to repay that kindness or to pay it forward. And the way we do that is by improving the state of our mind so we can gain more and more wisdom, compassion, and capacity to be of benefit to sentient beings, helping them now in samsara, but especially being able to help them approach liberation and awakening. So with that far-reaching motivation, then we'll share the Dharma today. So uh, before we start, I just wanted to say that uh, this group has been quite a, a wonderful group to work with. You've been all very settled and uh, very earnest in learning the teachings and, uh, you know, no explosions. <laughs> Sometimes we get groups that are not so settled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this group's very, very good. Uh, so it's nice, you know, because you all, uh, in that way, create an environment that everybody here can benefit from. So, and be benefited by. So thank you for that. Okay, so I looked at the text, and as usual with me, we're going to be stopping right in the middle of a chapter. Okay. Um, somebody wrote me today, and I, I had written a paper for a conference that I'm going to, and they asked, please, will you send an outline of your remarks? And it's, you know, that I'm going to give it the kind. And it's like, I don't do that. I just speak. You know, I can't write out my remarks. So it's the same way here. I can't plan, you know, how far we're going to get and how much we're going to do every day. Although today I had to, so that we didn't end in the middle of a paragraph. <laughs> okay. Okay, 
So, uh, yeah, so actually last night we stopped right in the middle of something, didn't we? Um, yeah, so I uh, last night I've been talking uh, about the visualization for when we take refuge, okay, with uh, all the holy beings in front. And uh, it doesn't say it here, but we should be, I should put that in here, and this is going to come. Uh, that we're surrounded by all the sentient beings. Okay, please make a note of that if we don't run across it. So I put it in. And we'll say, well, yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, because we're, it, we're sitting there amidst all the sentient beings uh, looking to the three jewels for guidance. And... I think imagining all the sentient beings around us is uh, very important and very, it, it transforms our mind because just imagining it makes us feel that uh, there's hope for sentient beings. Uh, you know, in the, center that, in the sense that everybody has the Buddha potential, everybody, you know, might one day come to see how the how the path makes sense they might start to practice ethical conduct concentration wisdom bodhicitta and uh, and so thinking that we're sitting amidst all the sentient beings and that we're leading them in turning to the three jewels for refuge uh, can be very very powerful so I often do this um, with the US Congress the U.S. Uh, executive branch, um, Putin. Um, I have all sorts of people in my refuge visualization. And I find it really helpful um, because I rem that helps me to remember there's sentient beings overwhelmed by afflictions and polluted karma. It's not, you know, nobody's an evil person. It's just they're sentient beings and they can't see clearly. So, you know, all of us, myself included, we all do really dumb things in our attempt to bring to be happy and instead create misery for ourselves and others. And so when I think of all of us being equal in that way, then visualizing everybody around me and we're all kind of the light bulbs going on in all of us of, hey, I need to change the way I'm living. And so then, together, we turn to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay. So, um, so we've done the visualization. We have everybody, yeah, all the holy beings in front of us, all the sentient beings around us. Okay. To engage in the uncommon so it's, this is the unique Mahayana practice of taking refuge. In addition to visualizing the three jewels in front, oh, here it is. Imagine all sentient beings around you. Yeah. Uh, recalling that they are experiencing various types of dukkha in cyclic existence generates strong compassion that wants them to be free of all dukkha. While chanting the refuge verse, think that you are leading them in turning to the three jewels for refuge. Okay. So some people think that generating compassion is useless 
because it is impossible to eliminate suffering completely. Remembering that all afflictions can be eliminated and that all beings have the potential to become Buddhas clears this misconception. <coughs> Other people fear that thinking about others' suffering will cause them to feel hopeless and fall into despair. Should this happen, our focus has shifted from compassion for others to personal despair that wants to protect ourselves from witnessing anything discomforting. To renew our compassion, we should return our focus to sentient beings and recall the joyous and skillful ways in which the three jewels continuously work to benefit them. This gives us hope and inspires us to work for the welfare of others. Okay, so if you're going to follow the Bodhisattva path, you have to have a very strong mind uh, in the sense of being able to bear uh, others' dukkha and others' misdeeds and uh, and to not fall into feelings of hopelessness or despondency by seeing the state of samsara. Okay? So we have to always remember that all beings have the potential to become Buddhas. Okay? And also to understand uh, that compassion doesn't mean that we become so overwhelmed by everybody's suffering that we become dysfunctional because we're crying all the time. So they do talk about bodhisattvas weeping with compassion, seeing the sense uh, the suffering of sentient beings, and they say that bodhisattvas find sentient beings suffering unbearable. But the way they weep and the way they find suffer sentient beings suffering unbearable isn't the way common people do. Okay, when we find sentient beings suffering unbearable, it's like, you know, what do we do? We cover our eyes. Yeah. That's so insane. You know, it's like, it's so awful. I can't stand it. I don't want to look at it. In other words, I'm upset by seeing their suffering. And when we get upset by seeing others suffering, then it's very difficult for us to benefit them because our own upset uh, runs the show. Yeah? And we need somebody to take care of us at that time. So compassion, we find sentient beings suffering unbearable in the sense that we can't just sit there and stick our head in the sand and do nothing. We are called to action to do whatever we can, but without expecting everything we do to bear instant results and without falling to despondency and despair ourselves. Okay? So it's um, we really have to understand what what compassion means in a proper sense, because uh, otherwise our common way of thinking of compassion can lead us often uh, to to not to not be very effective in benefiting others. Yeah, because we're despondent, we're depressed. It's we can't stand to see their suffering. We try and help them, and they don't follow our advice, and they create more negativity. And 
you know, if we have that kind of attitude, we're going to give up. But that's what they call burnout. And uh, um, Roshi Joan uh, Halifax pointed out to me one time that if we really, if we really have compassion, then we don't suffer from burnout. Yeah. So if our compassion is is really uh, proper with that internal strength and confidence and endurance, then uh, we can deal with whatever comes our way. Of course, that kind of compassion is going to take us a while to develop. You know, it's not going to be by tomorrow morning or even next week or next year. You know, it requires a lot of um, mental training. Reflecting in this way, our compassion for sentient beings and faith in the three jewels become so strong that we want to express them by reciting, I take refuge in the gurus, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. These words reflect our inner feelings of faith and determination. Okay? So one way to do it is we develop that faith and the determination and then say the words. You know, in other words, we have the feeling and then the words express that feeling. Another way to do it is, as you're saying the words, let the words generate that feeling inside of you. Okay? So one way is from inner out, the other way is outer in. Some people ask why I take refuge in the gurus is added. Since Buddhism has, uh, Buddhists have three objects of refuge, not four. The spiritual master is the one who introduces us to the three jewels. And due to his or her kindness, we are able to learn and practice the path and eventually become the three jewels ourselves. To emphasize the importance and kindness of our spiritual mentors, Especially in tantric practice, we include them when taking refuge. (coughs) Here the guru is seen as inseparable uh, from the Buddha. Or we see the guru as embodying all the qualities of the three jewels. Recite each line of refuge several times before going on to the next. Usually we just recite the four lines oh, three times you know, all together. But it's very uh, effective just to recite one line at a time and uh, recite that one line many, many times. And then there's a whole way to think that's coming about how to do that. So recite each line of the refuge several times before going on to the next. This is more effective than reciting all the lines together several times. While reciting each line, focus on light streaming from that particular refuge object into you, purifying all negativities you have created in relation to that refuge object and bringing uh, the inspiration of that refuge object into you. Okay, so... 
if you do the full visualization, like in that tanka, when you're th- saying Namo Guru Vya, or I take refuge in the gurus, then you would think of the Buddha and then the three groups of gurus that are around the Buddha in the upper part of the Tonka, that light is coming from them. First, white light is coming from them into you, purifying all negativities that you've created in relationship to them. And then uh, golden light comes from them, bringing their imagining that their realizations, their compassion and their wisdom is flowing into you. Okay? Then when you say Namo Guru Vya, you imagine that you do the same with the white light and the golden light, uh, but this time they're coming from the Buddha and then all the meditation deities and the circle of Buddhas. Yeah. Then when you say Namo Dharmaya, there's um, all the teachers have texts with them, so you imagine that the light and, uh, is uh, coming from the Dharma texts into you. And the Namo Sangaya, then you think of the rows of bodhisattvas, of Pratyeka Buddhas, of Arhats, Dakas, Dakinis, and the uh, Arya Dharma protectors. And the light is coming from them into you and into all the beings, you know. I say into you, but it means yourself and everybody who's around you. Okay, so it's the same visualization, but just who it's coming from as you say each line. And then there's um, different ways to think in terms of what you need to purify with respect to each of the four. Okay? So in this or previous lives, we may have angrily criticized our spiritual teacher or defamed the Buddha. We may have deprecated the Sangha with our sarcastic remarks. Okay, so perhaps we criticize subtle points of the Dharma, thinking they are just Tibetan culture, or said that the Dharma is not a correct path because it does not agree with our ideas. Before we can accurately discriminate what is Asian culture and what is the Buddhist teachings, it is unwise to dismiss certain teachings, thinking, this doesn't pertain to me, it is only meant for Tibetans. Okay. Similarly, it is not wise to declare the Buddha didn't teach this and that, simply because we do not feel comfortable with that teaching. It is wiser to maintain an open mind and think, I do not understand this point and will continue to learn and think about it until I reach a clear understanding. In the meantime, I will practice the teachings that I understand because doing so benefits me. Okay, so that, you know, is a good way to to look at things. Um, In the book, okay, there, what I just read was explaining what to purify in terms of the Dharma. Uh, We we did just the Guru and the Buddha very, very quickly. Um, Let's go back and see what to purify. Okay, so in terms of the, the guru, it was talking about angrily criticizing her spiritual teacher. Yeah, uh, being obstinate, being defiant, being, um, uh, yeah, uncooperative, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's good to purify. 
deprecating our spiritual mentors. Okay, this this kind of stuff, not appreciating. And so uh, then when we're focusing on the spiritual mentors, we think the light coming and uh, purifying all those actions, the negativities we've created with respect to the spiritual mentors. So that could include not only our direct spiritual mentors, but also the indirect ones, in other words, the lineage of teachers. So, you know, we may have criticized some of the great uh, teachers from the past, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, Nagarjuna said, what is this guy talking about? He's a nihilist, you know, so criticizing like that. So, uh, you know, for our, our, our own directors and also the indirect ones we purify. Then in, and, and also included within that is uh, taking our guru's things, taking our spiritual mentor's property, misusing things that belong to our spiritual mentor. Um, all these kinds of things that we can do Seem so seemingly innocently, and uh, and yet they plant uh, these seeds of uh, harmful karma on our mind stream. In terms of the Buddha, it would be criticizing the Buddha. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear people say, "Oh, the Buddha was a deadbeat dad. He walked out on his wife and his child." You know, so that kind of criticism. I mean, you don't criticize. For that, but some people do, or um, you know, why did the Buddha set up the Sangha? This is just too too ridiculous, or um, you know, various things like that, or taking uh, things that belong to the Buddha. So remember, yesterday I was talking about uh, making offerings, and then we take them down when we want dessert. So, uh, you know, we have to be careful with that because these are things that have been offered to the Buddha and we shouldn't think, oh, uh, I'm just putting there for, for the time being and then, but they really belong to me. Okay. Or taking things that people have offered uh, to the Buddha statues and so on. Sometimes people offer jewelry or they offer money or whatever. And taking that and using it for oneself. So that creates a lot of negativity. That's why I think it's very important when um, in, in temples, and this is usually not very clear, uh, many temples have a donation box uh, right beside the altar. Yeah. And, and so it's unclear to people, are you offering to the Buddha Dharma Sangha or are you offering to the temple? Yeah, and because it's near the the Buddha Dharma Sangha, people are often thinking, "Oh, I'm offering to the Buddha Dharma Sangha," but the the temple is taking the money. So I think personally, personally, I think it's much clearer if you're going to do that. You know, people can offer money on the altar if they want to. If you go to Dharamsala in the main temple, you know. Uh, I know I always do. When I bow to His Holiness a seed, I put a kata and some money there. And, you know, in front of the Buddhas, who do the same. So, in my mind, that's offering to to the Buddha and should be used for the Buddha. Okay. 
if I'm offering to the temple, then if there's a donation box somewhere else in the hall, I put it there, or I take it to the office and, and give it uh, in the office, or in some other donation box that's not right by the, the, um, the altar. Yeah. So I think if temples do that, then it's clearer to the people making offering what, uh, where the, the money, what the money is going to be used for and who they're offering it to. Okay, so we should be careful and not just, uh, you know, take things that were offered to the Buddha and then buy, you know, food and clothing and toilet paper with them. You know? Yeah? So what would the money be used for if it was offered to the Buddha? Okay, then you would use it to get more Buddhist statues. If your present statues need to be repainted, you would make an offering to whoever painted them or for the expenses of that. Uh, if the altar needed, you know, cloth or, you know, something like that. Or you could buy other offerings uh, that you would offer during puja to the Buddha. So like that. Okay? Similar to the Dharma, if people offer... Uh, to the Dharma, like in Dharmsala. People don't do that so much here, but in Dharmsala, then you put money, you know, by the Dharma text, then you would use that money uh, to print more Dharma texts or to buy Dharma texts for your library or to make the cloths or to make bookshelves to, to put the texts on. Okay? You know, some people say that when you offer to the Sangha, uh, then that, you know, the, the temple can keep that money, so, you know, and use it for the, the monastic sangha. Um, but in my mind, you know, when you're offering to the three jewels, the sangha jewel, uh, <clears throat> those are people who are aryas. And I don't know about you, but I'm not an arya. And so, you know, in a regular monastery, how many aryas do you have? So, I think it's better, you know, that the, the, the monastics in the monastery use, uh, you know, get things from things that are, from funds that are offered to them directly, not offered to the Arya Sangha or the Sangha Jewel. Mm-hmm. In the case of the food offerings, I read somewhere that there's a purifying mantra that you can use for, to when you take down the food offering and then put it out to be consumed by mm. other people. Do you know what it is? I don't know what uh, it is. Yeah, maybe you could write it down for us. Okay. <laughs> yeah, or tell us where you found it. And yeah, Because I, I think that's good to do. What I try to do is, you know, mentally ask permission as the caretaker of the altar to take it down. Uh, negativities in relation to the Sangha are created by criticizing Aryas or the monastic community. So the monastic community represents or symbolizes the Arya Sangha, but not all monastics are Aryas. An Arya is somebody who has direct realization of emptiness. Uh, since we ordinary beings are not capable of discerning the spiritual level of others, it is wiser to avoid hostile judgment concerning anyone, anyone, as this interferes with our refuge and creates destructive karma. 
Avoid making sweeping statements about the Sangha. For example, saying that monasticism is useless and outdated, that monastics are parasites on society, or that celibacy is unhealthy. And I've heard all three of those said by people in the West, and sometimes even by lay Buddhist teachers, which is most astounding that they would say that. Um, like I said before, in the East, the the people don't say, don't speak like that by and large. Mm-hmm. Such misconceptions make me sad. Our teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha himself, was a monastic, and he established the monastic community for a good purpose. Due to the kindness of the Sangha, the teachings exist in pure forms today, and we were able to encounter them. Respecting the precepts that exist in the monastics' mind streams enables us to benefit from their good example of ethical conduct. Okay. Um, so this fits in with the refuge ceremony that we're doing later the, and the pre- taking precept ceremony. Um, in the blue prayer book, if you look, there's uh, refuge guidelines. Yeah, you went over those with the people. So, um, you know, those are very helpful to, to read because uh, they give us more instruction about how to relate to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Yeah. And so how to relate to the actual three jewels and then how to relate to the things that represent the three jewels. Okay, so, uh, you know, in terms of representations, those would be the statues for the Buddha. So, you know, we keep the statues in high places. We keep them clean. Um, The Dharma would be the text. So again, we keep the Dharma high. We don't put, you know, your teacup on top of the Dharma text or your sci-fi novel on top or your, uh, you know, whatever (laughs) on top of Dharma text. In terms of the Sangha, then you respect the monastic community. So it's, um, you know, those are the representations. But the actual three jewels we take refuge in are, uh, you know, they're all holy beings. The representations, uh, you know, aren't they just symbolize the the three jewels of refuge? Okay, so you can read uh, in Taming the Mind. There's a section about this um, uh, online. We have a big section about it too, about refuge and uh, the refuge guidelines. So you can learn more about it there, and it's really helpful to learn because it gives gives us. Um, I know for me, it was something that, that uh, I learned early on, and, uh, and I found it quite helpful because then I knew how to think regarding the three jewels and, the re- and their representations and how to, uh, how to behave, how to act, and, you know, uh, and develop respect in my own mind for others' good qualities. Yeah, we have the Refuge Resource Book online, so which contains a lot of different material. We like people to read that before they take refuge, or if not before, then after. And, uh, and many times it's good to read, actually, so it makes you think about deeper 
about refuge each time. Because refuge isn't like you take it or you don't take it. Refuge is something that develops in you more and more and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And then one day when you become a Buddha, you become the three jewels. Okay, so it's something unique in Buddhism. You know, in theistic religions, there's generally a gap between us and God, according to the theology. In, uh, in Buddhism, you know, we can become the holy beings. There's no impenetrable gap. You know, we are not uh, sinful or evil by nature. It's just that our mind is clouded by, by um, uh, afflictions and polluted karma. When visualizing white light flowing from each refuge object into you and all sentient beings around you, think that the negativities created in relation to that refuge object are purified. Then imagine golden light streaming from them into you and into all sentient beings, inspiring your minds with, the good, with their good qualities. In this way, form a pure and strong connection to the three jewels. So this visualization helps you make that connection. You know, you're not just saying, I take refuge to the Buddha into empty space. You know, you're visualizing being in the presence of these holy beings and saying, I take refuge in the Buddhas. Okay, and so on. So very effective. After taking refuge, generate bodhicitta. Cultivating the proper motivation for our meditation is extremely important. <clears throat> because the results of our spiritual practice accords, uh, accords with our motivation for doing it. Although your bodhicitta may at present be contrived and generated only with effort, do not despair. By reflecting on bodhicitta repeatedly, you will gradually become more accustomed to it until eventually this altruistic intention will arise effortlessly within you. Okay, at this point, pause and be aware of the status of the I who is taking refuge and the I that is aspiring to awaken. How does this I exist? Does it have an inherent nature or does it exist dependent on other factors? Okay, so do a meditative meditation on emptiness here. Now, with firm aspiration to follow the guidance of the three jewels for the benefit of all sentient beings, and with a sincere wish to become the three jewels, dissolve the refuge objects into you by imagining that they melt into light and all dissolve into the Buddha in the center, who in turn comes on top of your head, melts into light, uh, and dissolves into light. Uh, oh, here we have it. Uh, dissolves into light and entering you through your midbrow. Sometimes they do it from the head. Here, here it's through the midbrow, so right there, and that that light uh, dissolves into you. The dissolving of the refuge objects into you is not like butter melting in a dish, where the butter and the dish remain separate. <laughs> Rather. Reflect that we ordinary beings and the Buddha have the same nature. 
Just as the Buddha's mind is empty of inherent existence, our mind is also free from inherent existence. This is the meaning of the statement, the Buddhas and sentient beings are of equal taste and emptiness. Just as the Buddhas were able to attain awakening because they had the natural Buddha nature and the transforming Buddha nature, we have the same Buddha nature that they have. Just as the Buddhas were once ordinary beings who practiced the Dharma diligently, removed their faults, and developed all good qualities, we too can do this by putting energy into cultivating the path. Okay, so it's, you know, when you do that visualization and the Buddha dissolves into you, first of all, you feel a very close connection with the Buddha, you know. And so if you ever feel lonely, this visualization, you know, reminds you the Buddha's your best friend. And, you know, the Buddha's flowing into you. And, you know, you're with your best friend. You're united with your best friend in your heart. And then it also reminds us that we have the same potential as the Buddha. And just as the Buddha practiced hard and attained the path uh, and all the realizations, we can do the same thing. Um, okay, so re reflecting on these similarities between the Buddhas and sentient beings leads us to contemplate the ultimate nature of all existence, emptiness. This is the real meaning of the Buddha dissolving into us. Okay, this meditation on emptiness. At this point, do not focus on the qualities of the three jewels, but on their emptiness of inherent existence, which is the same as your ultimate nature. When meditating on emptiness, conventional objects such as the Buddhas and sentient beings do not appear to the mind. So do not see yourself and the refuge objects as separate. You have become non-dual in emptiness. At this point, dwell in emptiness according to your present understanding of it. Okay. So this is right at the beginning of your practice. You know, this we're on this section of the talking about the meditation session. That's the preparation for it. So right away, you know, you're meditating on emptiness. After a while, within this emptiness of true existence, your wisdom-realizing emptiness appears in the form of the Buddha with a body made of golden light. Imagine that, as the Buddha, you radiate light that purifies and inspires sentient beings, transforming them into Buddhas and the environments into pure lands, places where all conditions are conducive for Dharma practice. Allow your mind to rest in this vision of all sentient beings being liberated from cyclic existence due to your having guided them with compassion. Okay? So you dissolve the sentient beings into you. You meditate that your nature and the Buddha's nature is non-dual. You know, you're both emptiness, empty of inherent existence. Within that emptiness, without leaving it, you imagine that you arise as the Buddha. And then you send light rays out uh, from your heart, imagining that you're enlightening all the other sentient beings around you and transforming the environment too. Yeah. 
And so, and then you just sit there, you know, with the feeling of, wow, I'm in a pure land. And, you know, this merely labeled I brought this about. Okay, so it's, it's very uh, reaffirming. Mm-hmm. So then after you do that, then again reflect that sentient beings still live in conflict because they lack the four immeasurables, equanimity, love, compassion, and joy. So you enlightened of them. There's the pure land. You're a Buddha. But then you remember, mm, sentient beings, you know, they still, they still don't have it together, you know, especially because they're not only lacking wisdom, but they're lacking the four immeasurables. Okay? And so... Uh, then you cultivate the four measurables. So equanimity is the wish for all beings to be free of bias, attachment, and anger. Love is the wish for them to have happiness and its causes. Compassion is the wish that they be free of dukkha and its causes. Joy is the wish that they never be separated from sorrowless bliss, in other words, from nirvana. Okay. So we can talk about these four, and then we'll never end the retreat. Uh, So I won't go into it now. But uh, they're explained in depth in Volume 5, which will come out next August. (laughs) Okay. Meditate on these four immeasurables to reinforce your feeling of connection and involvement with others. This will help you to avoid harming them and to engage in benefiting them in your daily life. Although these practices are done at the level of imagination, they plant seeds in our mind streams that enable us to act in this way. Okay? So don't denigrate the power of imagination. Okay? Like we were saying the other day, you know, we dress up uh, in our parents' clothes, we dress up as, uh, you know, people from different professions, and just imagining ourselves and being somebody or doing something enables us to be able to do it. It's similar to how the athlete, athletes imagine themselves jumping so high or throwing the ball or, you know, whatever they do. Okay? Um, so we, we have to imagine ourselves uh, as enlightened beings doing the, the work, the activities that enlightened beings do. And doing this plants the seeds in our mind stream uh, and, you know, on a subtler level encourages us to to try thinking this way, try acting this way, try to cultivate these qualities. Okay? So this is where we're going to (laughs) stop. Right in the middle of the chapter. just before contemplating the seven seven limbs. So uh, next year, then we'll start up from here. Or actually, we'll probably get to this before next year because we'll be finishing um, Volume 1 before I go to Asia. And then after we come back, we'll start from here with Volume, you know, and Volume 2. Okay. Giving you something motivation today. You were talking about um, wisdom, compassion, and capacity. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if those are 
what the qualities mean when they talk about Manjushri, Chaturmasi, Rajakani, like wisdom, compassion, yes. power. Power means yeah. Power, like they usually say power, but in working with Geshe Dado this last time, he says it's more capacity. You know, sometimes they say skill. You know, skillful means. Um, yeah, so you get, for that third one, you get all different kinds of translation for it. But definitely, Chenrezi for compassion, Manjushri for wisdom, Vajrapani for capacity, power, skillful means, whatever you call it. And then, if you don't mind, could you explain that again in 3D? I'm kind of lost with... Okay, so in 3D, yeah, you actually have one big thread. Say this is and in the middle you have a smaller throne. Okay. The Buddha sits on that smaller throne. Okay. <laughs> then uh, there's, there's uh, four thrones around that center throne. Okay. In the front uh, throne sit all the lineage. Okay. Well, no. Sorry. The lineage, the lineage lamas from the uh, scratch, scratch that out. The the lineage lamas from the vast tradition sit on the Buddha's right. So that's Maitreya and all those the Sangha and those lineage lamas. On uh, the Buddha's left, then you would have uh, Manjushri and Nagarjuna lineage lamas from the wisdom aspect. Okay? Then, uh, in the back you would have many of the tantric lamas, and in the front your personal teachers. And they're all sitting on a smaller front. Okay? Then, in circles around them, on that, the big throne, first you have a circle of the meditational deities and all the Buddhas. Then just outside of them, they're on the thrones surrounding the Buddha okay yeah <laughs> I was going to say if there's one more object of refuge, I'm going to fall off the seat. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, dedicate.